3: Hello and welcome to the Game Day Podcast from TalkSport with me, Sam Matterface, the assistant editor of The Mirror, Darren Lewis, and TalkSport's European football expert, Kevin Hatchard. Coming up, the big transfer targets. Why are clubs honing in on these particular talents? Where does Raheem Sterling fit in at Chelsea? And why are Manchester United so desperate to seal a deal for Frankie de Jong? Also, a look at the Lionesses before the start of the European Championships, which is live on TalkSport. And do we really care that Jack Grealish was living la vida loca in Las Vegas? It's all on the Game Day podcast from TalkSport. This is Game Day. No Alex Crook today, but Kevin Hatchard is here, and so is Darren Lewis. And look, all of us are trained journalists. Uh, We love a good story, and we're all thinking this morning as we woke up, if only we knew that all you had to do uh, was send a little tweet out and uh, gaslight a little uh, chief executive of a football club, sit down at the pub at the end of their road, and eventually they would just turn up and spill the beans to you. That's all you have to do, apparently um uh, Richard Arnold the Manchester United CEO uh was uh, uh the victim of a planned protest outside his house uh he got wind a bit Heard that they were meeting in the pub beforehand. So just went down the pub, had a pint with them and chatted through uh, some of the big issues of the day. I must admit, I can't work out Darren, whether or not this is a proper bit of PR skullduggery on the part of Manchester United or a piece of genuine human connection from Richard Arnold, but whatever it is a belting story. Um, Fans plan protests at house of new CEO. He finds out that they're going to meet in the pub and he goes to the pub. Brilliant. I love it.
2: I love it too. Um, I think it's superb PR on his part. I think it's um, a great move to head them off at the pass, as it were. It reminded me very much of Kevin Keegan on the steps of St. James's Park, talking to fans upset over the sale of Andy Cole all those years ago. Um, In terms of deciding I'm not going to wait for a sanitised press release or some kind of official line. I'm just going to go and talk to him man to man. And I think In some respects, it's that kind of dose of reality stroke common sense that Manchester United need in their approach to their fan base. And the disappointment from the club's point of view is that it was leaked out in an attempt to embarrass Richard Arnold. I would never say, I've said this on the show before, I would never say that somebody giving us information... uh, is a bad thing no. because our job is information. Our job is news. If somebody wants to tell us, I'd be a hypocrite to sit here and say that the fans are wrong to leak it. I think they were wrong to leak it in, a, in an attempt to embarrass Richard Arnold when all he is guilty of doing is being honest and open and trying to plot a way forward in conjunction with the fans.
3: Yeah, I mean, what I would say is, is it, it, the only thing that worried me is that he said they've burned through so much cash that Manchester United can't upgrade their stadium or their training ground. He said, we've blown an enormous amount of money. You can't go to our training ground and say, show me where that billion pounds is here. And he is right, Kevin, but he has been part of the Manchester United machine since 2007. For Christ's sakes, he's been in control of their business operations since 2013. So the idea that he's talking about burning through a billion
4: pounds, actually, it's partly on his watch. Yeah, that's true. Uh, But a lot of people will focus on the job that Ed Woodward did before that. And I think rightly so, because one of the things I thought was interesting about what Richard Arnold said to the fans was about the kind of involvement of Woodward's in transfers and the fact that he actually is going to step away. He's going to let John Murto do his thing. He's going to let Eric Ten Hag do his thing and he will give them the money. There is a specific budget, it seems, for this summer. I thought it was a good thing that he met them. I don't like the idea of fans going to a, a chief exec's house. No, I, I don't think that's acceptable. I, I don't think that's the way to protest. I understand the anger. I, I've said before I don't agree with the the way the Glazers took the club over. I don't agree with leveraged buyouts in general. But I don't think you can have a situation where you're threatening to go to, a, to an, a, an executive's house. That's not right. So... I, I applaud the fact that he had that concept with the fans. I thought it was a shame it was leaked. I think that was probably always going to happen, sadly, in the social media age. There was always yeah. going to be one of the people in the meetings who saw, oh, this would be a laugh. I'll sneakily, you know, I film didn't this. I don't care that it was leaked. I don't care that it was leaked,
3: really. I actually think it's quite good. I think it's just such a great story that we should know about yeah. it. I, I sort of kind of feel like this is... This is maybe Manchester United doing something they haven't done for a long time, which is engaging with with their supporters on a on a human level. And do you know what? About time to.
2: I look up and down at the Premier League and I think to myself, would you see anyone at Arsenal doing that? Not really. I mean, I know one or two people have held those fans forums things, but this is very different going to the pub for a pint and saying, look, guys, off the record... Um, this is what the situation is. Um, there are a number of other chairmen at a number of other clubs that I would not even countenance the idea of them doing it. And, you know, if one of anyone from any of our outlets um, or us were to be in receipt of information like that, we would use that information. So I'm not going to criticise the fans for, as I say, for, for leaking it. But I just think it's a mistake because there was a real opportunity to build a relationship with the guy. And you have to wonder whether he would agree to do it again, knowing that someone within that circle would be likely to do that again. One last thing um, on that. I agree with you, Kevin. I I think sometimes we tiptoe around it because it's Manchester United, but there are a number of things that they've done in the, the name of protests that have crossed the line. You know, all of us understand the frustration of the club, uh, with the, uh, of the fans, with the direction that the club has taken. But you can't go to chief executives' houses. You can't trash Old Trafford. You can't do some of the things that some, some of the United fans have done. You can't threaten Others, the life of the, the captain,
3: for
4: example. You
2: can't. You, can't you, you simply can't. And I'm sorry, but I don't care how passionately you feel about the club. There are some areas where you are crossing the line if you do that kind of thing and it is our job to be clear about that
3: but there must be a mechanism for them to protest i think and and yeah, certainly when you're manchester united and you, they've been as badly run and look they have been badly run because the ceo has just admitted that they've been badly run for the last 10 years um then you, you can understand the frustrations <laughs> of the fans and actually getting to the point where actually they're getting It's got to a crucial breaking point. They need to get their point across. They need to try and force change. Maybe that will happen. One of the things that might change is personnel over the course of the summer. Uh, We're going to look at Raheem Sterling, Gabriel Jesus, Darwin Nunez, uh, before we get into the Lionesses a little bit later on. Uh, All about those players and where tactically they fit into their potential new clubs. But we're going to start with Frankie de Jong. Yes, let's look at some of those transfers and what they'll bring to their new clubs because we've had a lot of big clubs either acquiring or getting close to acquiring big name talent or even going all in on one particular player, just identifying that that player is going to be their summer target and nothing else. And that certainly seems to be the case with Manchester United and Frankie de Jong. Uh, Why is he so crucial to Eric Ten Hag? Why are they desperate, Kevin, to sign him?
4: He's a very clever player for a start. He's very important in build-up, which is going to be something that's very important to Eric Ten Hag as a Manchester United coach. So what he's able to do is he can either uh, break the lines with a clever pass or what he's very, very good at doing He's drawing a defensive player onto him and then taking them out of the game, either with a cleverly disguised pass or he might ghost past them. He, he kind of plays that role in a way that not many players do, actually. I do think he would need a ball winner in there alongside him. That's not really what he does. But he's the kind of player that can genuinely dictate the tempo of a, of a team and of a game. And he can structure their attacks in a way that they haven't been able to do in the season just gone. They were terrible in build-up in the season just gone. And it's such an important part of the game in general. And it's a really important part of what Eric Ten Hag is going to want to do. He played a key role in the Ajax team. That was so successful domestically, but also got to the semifinals of the Champions League in 2019. And apart from an incredible comeback by Tottenham, they would have got to the final that year. So I can understand why they want him. The situation's complex because Barcelona, in an ideal world, would not sell him. Xavi is a big fan. He's a player that can be a big part of their rebuilds. But financially, they might need to sanction the deal just to try and balance the books and bring other players in. So there's still a lot of moving parts to this, but I can understand why Ten Hag wants to work with him again. Yeah, he's the kind of player that can
3: take the ball under intense pressure. In the Premier League, when you're being relentlessly pressed by some of the bigger teams in the league, that is a, a key facet of the game and something that Manchester United in particular weren't very good at last year. He can find the killer pass. He doesn't mind taking the ball in tight circumstances. And yeah, he looks like he'll be the keystone to the system that Eric Ten Hag wants to play. But I think Barcelona thought that he was going to be as well. And that hasn't quite worked out, despite the fact that Xavi is a fan. He hasn't had the best of times there. Um, But whether or not they get a deal down might depend more on whether or not Barcelona sanction the sale at a particular price because they are in a parlour state financially i think it was just the other day that they agreed to sell off 49.9 percent of their future shirt sales pretty much um i mean that is pretty worrying they are they are desperately in need of cash darren so maybe that might be the reason that uh oh. de jong ends up moving on
2: you, you, you're right about all of that. But the, the, if I were a United fan, I'd be a little bit concerned. I was While you've been talking, I was just looking here because it rang a bell for me, something I'd read uh, a few weeks ago, where De Jong basically said he didn't want to go. Mm. He said, I'm already at my dream club. I prefer to stay with Barcelona, His interview with our colleagues at ESPN. And he said, look, um, it's my dream club, also from a very young age. I've never regretted my choice. Now, could be old fashioned, but I think if you're looking to change the culture at a club and you want to rebuild, you need players who are committed to what you are trying to do. And it sounds very much as though United are throwing money at this guy in the hope that he will agree to change his mind. And for me, that's a bit of a red flag early doors. And I don't know. I think you've got to have people who don't feel they're doing you a favour if you're trying to go in the right direction, rather you know, making rather than players who are taking the step down and would rather be at the club that is pushing them out of the door. But there is a lot about this one that worries me.
4: I think there's an element of positioning here, though, as well. Uh, I think he wants to send the message to the Barcelona fans. Look, I'm committed to this club because he knows this might not go through. He knows that if Barcelona don't get the money for him that they want or need, he might still be a Barcelona player. So the one thing he doesn't want to be seen to be doing is making eyes at Ten Hag and Manchester United so that then he gets grief from the Barcelona fans if he ends up staying. I do think he's genuine about enjoying his time at Barcelona. It has been a very dysfunctional football club on and off the pitch. That changed in the in the second part of last season with the work that Chabi did and the players they were able to bring in in the winter window. The worry for them as a football club is that they haven't learnt anything. Joan Laporta, the president, is already talking about trying to match... Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City and compete for the biggest signings if they can, you know, sell off the merchandising and the licensing or at least 49.9% of those. The the debts are enormous. They really are. And so Barcelona, whether they like it or not, are going to have to find a different way. But I I disagree with Dana slightly. I normally would in terms of commitment, but I think he could be such an important signing for them. That that initial reluctance, and look, he's worked really well with Ten Hag before, so I don't think it would be a problem necessarily. I think that can be overcome because I think he would bring
2: so much to that team and to that club. Okay, just a question for you: if 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 you feel that it's, a, it's an element of positioning, then surely say nothing rather than say one thing, say say something one way or the other. Because I, and and then when the deal is done, you can talk about the fact that you didn't want to leave. They pushed you out of the door. But for me, I just think messaging is so important. And when you're a club like Manchester United, the size of Manchester United, you should I remember when Yapstam they wanted to sign Yapstam, Yapstam wanted to come. It, it, they talk about it. But I think he said himself, yeah, you know, he wasn't interested in the money. He wanted to come. He wanted to play for Ferguson. He wanted to play at Old Trafford. They are such a massive club, United, that you want players who want to be at the club. They are. Not players who say, I'm at my dream club already. I don't want to go. I, I, th- I just think it doesn't send out the right message for a club that's trying to change its culture. They
3: are, but they're in a different position now than they were Absolutely. at the end of the 90s, the beginning of the 2000s. They're a club that actually need to rebuild mm. and need to convince players to buy into the project. Man. Absolutely. And that is something that maybe Eric Ten Haag can do with Frankie de Jong. It's getting a little bit more difficult with some of the Dutch players, though, isn't it? Because Urien Timber, for example, was expected to be another one of those who would sign for Eric Ten Haag. But he's been convinced out of it by Louis van Haal, who systematically seems to be going around and telling
4: everybody who's anyone in Dutch football, don't do it. They're a basket place of a club. <laughs> well, this is a really interesting thing as well, because I think this is going to really inform what happens in the transfer market we have a really odd situation in that we have a World Cup halfway through the season. Mm. And so players are thinking, right, if I go there and don't play in the opening three months of the season, I'm not going to play for my national team. If Urien Timber goes to Old Trafford and plays four, five Premier League games, Van harle will just go, well, you're a good player, but you're not playing, so I, I can't put you in my team. Whereas if he stays at Ajax, plays regularly, plays well... He's got a much better chance of being in that team come the first game of the World Cup for them.
3: So could that mean that January ends up being almost a bigger transfer window than usual because people will wait till after the World Cup before making
4: those moves? I think so. I think we'll get that that flurry of deals afterwards because we always get somebody does well in in a World Cup and they yeah. get a big move that they would normally have got, and I think that will be accelerated to some extent. Okay, let's and talk- also.
2: I think as far as Tin Hag is concerned, I, I know he's done fine things at Ajax, and I, I know you'll be able to uh, expand on that, Kevin. But I, I, I kind of think United and Van der Baker. The jury's out for the first six months of the season. I wonder if players are looking to see whether they are going in the right direction before they go. Whereas everyone knows what you get from Liverpool, from a city, Chelsea obviously being champions of Europe, Spurs are going in the right direction under Conte, but you don't quite know whether Ten Hag and United are going to be a good fit. So outside of the Dutch players who know what he can bring, other players are not quite so sure. And that's why uh, big players aren't even considering uh, the biggest players aren't considering United as an option right now
3: yeah and you've got Van Hal whispering in every Dutch player's ear don't do it don't do it <laughs> actually he's not whispering he's only saying what the fans are saying not, you know not, the fans are
2: basically saying that they're, they're a mess they're about, yeah. you know, oh, so I don't think it's bad blood or a grudge well, I think, I think is. he's saying they've been <laughs> so focused on money which has been the case you talk about Richard Arnold that they've not focused on the team so players are going there. are the young uh, sorry van der Beek played 175 games, I think it was, for for Ajax. He went to United. He didn't kick a ball in anger. He clearly did once or twice, but, you know, he was a fringe player and now he's at Everton. So I can see why... Van Halen saying, I want players who are playing regular first-team football to go to Qatar.
3: Yeah, I, I made a mistake there. I said he's whispering in everybody's ear. He's not. He's picked up a megaphone and <laughs> shouting it at everyone. Whatever you do, <laughs> don't go to Manchester United. Um, um, Fabio Vieira has signed on the dotted line at Arsenal. What is he going to bring to their midfield? Who is he? He's 22 years of age. He was at Porto last season. He was the European Under-21 Championship player of the tournament a couple of years ago and he was essentially the most creative player in Portugal Kevin uh, producing more assists and expected assists per game than any
4: other player in the division he's really good fun he's a proper entertainer uh, and I think he's gonna be a breath of fresh air I think he's somebody who fits into that that growing group of Arsenal players who are so technically gifted who make things happen I think he'll slot in really nicely to that three behind the the front man. I think he'll be good cover and competition for Erdegaard because they didn't really have anyone like him. So when he wasn't in the team, that made a bit of a difference. He's somebody that showed up in the big games in Portugal last season. He was a big part of Porto uh, grabbing back that Primera Liga title. As you say, he's done well at youth level for Portugal. He's done well at youth level at club competition as well, played ever so well in the youth league for Porto before he made that senior breakthrough. I know people will look at it and say, well, he hasn't played a huge amount of senior football, but what he has played has been very impressive.
3: Yeah, and Darren, they do need someone who is a little bit more creative in that midfield because a lot rested on the shoulders of Martin Erdegar last season. Um, Gabriel Jesus is another one that they are looking at. How do they transform those issues in front of goal? Because he's not a prolific goal scorer, is he? But is the problem, actually, that Arsenal haven't created enough chances or is it that they haven't converted them? I I sort of think it's between the two, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it is a bit between the two. It's interesting, actually, because clearly we know the market is shopping in. And if they do well next season, it will quite literally be like watching Brazil. Because if you look through the side, there are so many of Jesus' compatriots there. It's quite ironic, actually, because you're right about the fact that they don't create enough and they don't convert enough. But for me, there is far too little steel in that team as well. There isn't really the platform to build on Uh, because, you know, you can win games 1-0, you know, as long as you're keeping the back door shut. But Arsenal really don't know how to do that on a regular basis. Um, Against the smaller teams, they can. Against the bigger teams... People will point to victory over a Chelsea side that were basically marking time to the end of the season, and a Man United side that were opening the door to everyone last season. So I don't really consider those wins. Um, But I I think that Vieira is a wonderful player, a really good player for the future. I know they're trying to sign the left centre half as well, Kevin. You may know about a bit more about him. Um, But I, I think as far as Arsenal are concerned, it's converting goals. The problem with Jesus is that Spurs are sniffing around him as well. And this is going to be a problem Arsenal will have on, on many occasions because Spurs can offer him Champions League football, whereas Arsenal can't. Um, and if you're Jesus, presumably you'd want to stay at the highest club level uh, going into the World Club. He'd play on that right-hand side. He, and as I understand it, he prefers to play there rather than through the middle. So I don't even think he would solve... Arsenal's problems in terms of an orthodox centre forward. Um, and it's quite fascinating to see why that, that Arteta likes him. But for me, I'm not quite sure he's the answer. Well, and we're- I'm not talking in terms of scoring goals. His goal record's fine. I'm talking about in terms of the bigger picture of problems that they have.
3: He's um, obviously got a relationship with Mikel Arteta from when Arteta was the assistant at Manchester City. And maybe that might be the thing that, that sort of takes it over the edge and maybe gives Arteta the advantage over Antonio Conte. but And, and also the fact that with Harry Kane, Kulusevski uh, and Son in the team, you know, you're asking where does Jesus fit in. Uh, but uh, it looks as if he's going to be on the move to one of those two North London clubs. Um, why do Chelsea want Raheem Sterling? And is he going to be a better fit for them than Lukaku? Because it seems now, Kevin, that there's growing confidence around Chelsea that he is going to be their big name summer signing with Raheem Sterling reportedly out on England duty talking to Chelsea players, asking them what life is like under Thomas Tuchel.
4: Yeah, I think this is really interesting because I think he's a top-class player. I think he's proven that with Manchester City year upon year. You can't stay in a Pep Guardiola squad for as long as he has and play as many games as he has if you're no good. And we know what he did for England at the European Championship. Mm. It was great that he thrived in that way. Going back to when he was at Liverpool, I've been a massive fan of his. I love how intelligent he is with his running. I like the fact that Yes, people will point to some of the incredible misses he's had in front of goal. What I love about him is that he gets up and he goes again and then he'll keep trying to find those positions to score goals. I think he's incredibly intelligent and I think he would suit Thomas Tuchel actually in the way that he plays because he can play across that attacking line. I think the City thing is interesting because in the really key games last season, he wasn't picked in the starting 11. And I think that does happen to all City players at some stage. Bernardo Silva was out and then he was in. Ilkay Gundogan was in, then he was out, and then he was back in for that Aston Villa game in the end uh, and made such a difference. But I can understand why he would want to move on. He's a London boy, we know that. So this move does probably make a lot of sense.
3: Yeah, and also there is increased competition, and we'll get to Julian Alvarez as well a little bit later on because he's part of that and Erling Haaland meaning that it's a little bit clogged in that front battalion for Manchester City and he wants to play regularly because again he wants to play at the World Cup for England needs to be playing every single week he isn't a goal scorer of the like of Haaland or of uh, uh, Mo Salah but 131 goals in 339 appearances for Manchester City, where he hasn't often played through the middle, Darren, is not a bad return. And they don't need him to drop a link. They, they've got Mount, they've got Havertz for that. Do you think this works for Chelsea, This, this with Lukaku now seemingly on his way back to, to Inter?
2: Yeah, I think it does. Um, he arrives as a winner for Premier League titles. He can score goals, 13 goals in 30 Premier League appearances last season. Um And he joins a club that knows how to win as well. I've got to just say, while we've been on air, you might have seen me looking at the screen, Chelsea have announced Bruce Buck. This is Monday morning, obviously, we're recording this, and Chelsea have announced that Bruce Buck is going to step down at the end of the season. But he's going to stay around as an advisor to the club. Um, But, you know... (laughs) As a club, we all know that Chelsea know how to build a team to win silverware. But Darren, even
3: though they're announcing things like that, it does feel as if they're a little bit behind the curve in terms of transfer negotiations. You do wonder, with all that going on behind the scenes, who's actually doing all that?
2: Well, the interesting thing was, I was at the final game, uh, the Premier League game of this season um, against Watford, and... um, Thomas Tuchel said that he was asked if he was going to go on holiday. And I said, no holiday for me, no sun lounger. Um, I've got a list of targets we're waiting for uh, the takeover to be completed. And then we press the button on the targets that we have. And he'd drawn up that list of targets already. So he, he appears to have a clear idea of what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. He talked about having spoken to Todd Bowley, the new owner, and about Bowley being on board with what he wants to do and we understand since then that he's been given the green light to reshape the club in his own image the only thing that I do that does fascinate me about the pursuit of Raheem Sterling is that Chelsea have players in the wide positions already uh, Ziyech, Pulisic, hudson um Werner the only thing set against that is that
3: um, none of them have delivered
2: exactly Exactly, and Sterling arrives as somebody who knows exactly how to deliver. And I would imagine he he would arrive with a point to prove, given that he's into the last twelve months of his contract at City, and there hasn't been any desperation. There probably has been a willingness, but not a desperation to keep him, such that he's received an offer that he's not able to refuse. So I think he could be a good fit for Chelsea. I've got one play as a man with a mission.
3: I've got one play to Raheem Sterling if you're listening if you arrive at chelsea and they say to you you are here as our new frontline striker please take the number 9 shirt <laughs> just say no
1: yeah whatever happens
3: just say no okay that's all i'm going to say you can go back and you can never look through the annals of history do not wear it whatever you do Don't even look at it. Just get another shirt. Any shirt. Doesn't matter. Just don't touch that jersey. Um, (laughs) uh, One striker who uh, we might see a bit more of uh, next season is Julian Alvarez. And Kevin, you've been watching him.
4: Well, he's an interesting player. I mean, he's uh, guys like Tim Vickery who who cover south america so deeply and so widely have spoken highly of him for a long long time and this is a guy that just scores buckets of goals his movement i talked about raheem sterling's movement being really clever he's these two he's obviously a very different player to erling Haaland. i could see him really slotting into what pep guardiola wants from his players in the sense that he has that intelligence so he could take on board all of those patterns that Guardiola looks makes look like they are off the cuff makes it look as though they just happen but it's just time and time and time again on the training grounds getting them drilled down and he's the kind of player even at a young age who I think could take on board that information he's dealt with the pressure of playing for an enormous football club like River Plate uh, and he's thrived in that and the fact that City wanted to sign him ahead of time, but make sure he got game time by loaning him straight back, I think was
2: really interesting. So Kev, Kevin can play off the wide as well as in the center Yeah, that's Yeah, right. that's you, right. How do you think they'll play?
4: I, I'm fascinated to see what they do with Horland because if you look at the way they play in general, they're very fluid in that front line, aren't they? But they like those, those kind of cutbacks into the area. I think what you'll get is... Horland likes to run in behind a lot, so we'll see whether that happens. But one thing I think people don't focus on... It can't happen,
3: Kevin, can it? Because they have so much of the ball... They never find themselves really in a situation where there is space
4: for him to run in behind. That's it. But what, what I was going to say is that I think one of the facets of his game that people don't focus on so much, what they see on highlight reels and in games is him running onto the ball in the channels or running through and in behind. And he's so powerful and he's so quick that he's devastating in those areas. But what he's also excellent at his movement in the penalty area okay, and he's the kind of guy that with all of that domination City have and all of the balls that come into the penalty area he can make that near post run, he can pull off the defender he can find those pockets of space you need and what he can do that some other players haven't been able to do for City on a regular basis is find the finish he needs, he's a brilliant finisher so I think a guy like Alvarez could play in those wide areas and I think Haaland will pick up the pieces in the penalty area and that's what they don't have and against the better teams in transition when City aren't dominating in the way they normally do that's when Halland can come alive as well okay I mean you it's interesting you mentioned
3: that sort of I always say that sort of FIFA, FIFA 99 goal which is you get hold of the ball you run to the byline and then cut it back and there's always someone there waiting to tap it in that is the, the typical Manchester City goal isn't yeah. it they're, they're great at doing that and he's going to add to that because he can pull off a defender find that space and then he We know he can finish. Um, But how do you get... This is what fascinates me. Obviously, we're seeing Jesus and Sterling likely to leave. But how do you get um, Jack Grealish, Phil Foden, Kevin De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, Julian Alvarez, Erling Haaland, all into the same team? It's impossible, isn't it? There's going to be a heavy degree of rotation. Are the new signings going to be happy with
2: that? I think, and I think I said this right at the end of the season, that what we're seeing in the Premier League... Is a bit of an arms race because i don't think we're talking about teams anymore i think we're talking about squads yeah. i know for example at spurs antonio conti is building a a, a, a a squad where obviously kane and son apart there nobody can be uh guaranteed a first team place everybody in every game is working for their slot. Now, clearly, he will have a clear idea about the PUDA he feels the best players are in any given 11. But I, I think it's very similar at Liverpool and, and at the City. I think that although they both have a, a, a plethora of options. Nobody can take their place for granted, and that's as it should be because they've got so much quality in both squads. But I think City have looked across the road at Liverpool and seen that they're tearing up their squad and they're going to go again and they're trying to do the same thing. They've brought the average age down. They're not worried about losing experience because they've brought in quality. And I, I, just, I just think the whole process is fascinating to watch.
4: The physical demands now. On squads, We do, we talk about how many games there are. There's been such a long season. And then we went, oh, here we go. Here's Four Nations League game for you at the end of the season. Um, so you've got this. We're going to have an expanded Champions League in 2024, whether we like it or not. So we're going to have this Swiss model. There are going to be more games. So teams have to, they, they have to have uh, 25 who you could play in your biggest game of the season if you wanted to. And that cover and competition, I think Liverpool have done it brilliantly. I think City, as you say, Darren, have done a really good job of it. I think it's what Tuckle wants at Chelsea he wants he's always been a guy that mixes and matches he's always thought really deeply about the opposition and he'll make five six changes if he thinks it suits him and suits the team so what he wants is not a set starting 11 I think that's gone I think that idea now of oh well he doesn't know what his best 11 is good because it means he's got lots of players who are competing yeah. for places. And I, I mean, I know I mentioned it already, but Bernardo Silva, I think, is a great example at Manchester City. It wasn't that long ago we were talking about him wanting to go to Atletico Madrid because he wasn't playing. But he knuckled down and he became a really important part of that team. And Mares has done the same. He's been in and out. So I think that's the way the top clubs are operating now.
1: Hi, I'm Leah Williamson. Hi, I'm Millie Bright. Hi, my name's Lotta vibben moy Hi, this is Chloe Kelly. And you're listening to the Women's Euros. The Women's Euros. The Women's Euros. On, On Talksport. Talk. Downward
0: header from Paris is blocked, and then the shot is fired in by Williamson off the crossbar. And Ellen White has tucked it in, and would you believe it? Is Borisa going for goal and finding it? What a strike from Borisa. Cuts back onto her right foot um. and finds the net, Vivian Miedema. Starting as she means to go on.
1: It's so exciting. I, you know, I can't tell you how excited everybody is and, and how much everybody just wants to be involved in this squad and this journey, really. I think at Home Euros is a home tournament of any description, but Home Euros is, is up there with bucket list kind of things, isn't it, really?
0: I think just for women's football
1: in this country, it's going to be huge and obviously we're going to be able to have loads of fans and hopefully inspire a lot of uh, young girls and boys to, to keep playing football.
3: It may be festival season, but welcome to the main stage on the road to the women's euros live on talk sport in just 16 days or maybe 15 by the time that you listen to or watch this podcast uh, the women's european championship kicks off at old trafford england taking on austria in their first game throughout the tournament we will bring you all the action on talk sport and this pod will follow the tournament all the way through as well so we thought we would start by giving you an overview of what to expect. I mean, you may not watch the WSL every week, or may not have followed England too much before. Uh, but the coverage is, is expanding and easier uh, to follow and to find than ever. And joining us to talk about it is Flo Lloyd Hughes. Hello. Hey guys, how you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the pod. Um, I suppose the first sort of question is, uh, from from my uh, perspective of the situation, England are contenders to win this European Championship. And I think we sometimes say that and then everybody gets over uh, ambitious and starts to expect England to do well. But let's be completely clear, after their showings at the last three tournaments, we should be expecting a little bit more of this team that started to develop under their new manager.
1: I think so, yeah. Obviously, it's a a home tournament, so there's always going to be... A bit of expectation, a bit of pressure um, because of that anyway. Uh, And then I think you add to that that they have made semifinal the last two major tournaments, um, got to semifinals in the World Cup in or last three actually, World Cup in 2019, Euros in 2017. And then obviously they won uh, the third place playoff in the World Cup in 2015. So they they are yet to, to get to that final again. They have been to the final of a Euros before and lost in a final, but uh, they are yet to win a, a major tournament. So that is the real pressure this year. And I think with the new coach, Serena Bigman, I think there is reason, a lot of good reason to be excited and and realistic as well about their prospects and it not to just be... The fact that it's a home tournament, there's obviously going to be a lot of hype around
3: it. Yeah, there's quite a lot of competition as well. England, eighth in the world as far as the rankings are concerned, but five of the seven teams that are above them are from Europe. So that probably gives us an indication of how competitive it's going to be, doesn't it?
1: Yeah the, the continent is stacked with good teams at the moment. I think Sweden are probably the out and out favorites to win the competition really if you look at all of those teams. I think they're the ones who probably do have the best chance and probably have the most pressure alongside England because they did very well in the Olympic games. They've been improving. They beat England in the third place playoff in the 2019 World Cup. Absolutely blew them away. Um they have been similarly on a kind of very upward trajectory and they've been sort of classically known for quite a defensive robust style but in the Olympic Games we saw them add a little bit more flair and creativity with their game which also adds a new threat and I think people have sort of seen that and thought oh wow Sweden have leveled up a little bit Uh, and I think there's a lot of expectation for them to go uh, to the finals uh, of, of this summer's championship so I think they're probably England's kind of closest rivals and depending what happens with the draw and who wins what group England could potentially Potentially face Spain quite early on in the tournament, uh, but Spain, I don't think, are going to win the the tournament. But I think they're still going to be a, a, a team that's hard to beat. They're not Barcelona. Uh, that is the reality. They're a very good team, but they're not Barcelona. They they've lost one of their strikers recently through injury, and um, like a kind of any classic Spain team, they they have a lot of the ball, a lot of possession, but they do struggle to re- to create chances and score goals. So I think that you know could end up being their downfall. So there are a lot of teams who are good, but there aren't actually that many teams who are are the ruthless winners that you need to see at a major tournament.
3: Yeah, England did a particularly good job tactically against Spain in the Arnold Clark Cup against them when they restricted them and it finished nil-nil. I think Williamson uh, played in midfield in that game alongside, was it alongside Jules? Uh, uh, no, it was alongside uh, Kira Walsh, wasn't it, in that game. And they they nullified uh, the Spanish attack. Um, look, let's talk a little bit about the attacking talent that England have got, because they've got Kevin, quite a few young, upcoming players. This is a real good mix, actually, of of old heads. People like Stokes, Bronze, Scott, Bright, White and Kirby who have been around for a very, very long time. And some young attacking talent as well. Chloe Kelly uh, of Manchester City on the right-hand side. Lauren Hemp, who has been terrific in the WSL on the
4: left. Yeah, I was at the um, the FA Cup final. And Lauren, I I love a winger. I love a winger who'll just run at people. And Lauren Hemp, I thought, was absolutely outstanding. And, um, you know, you would think if she could take that kind of form into this tournament and really shine Chloe Kelly, I think he's back from long-term injury recently so you've yeah. got that ability to play them out wide and stretch teams. and I was going to ask Flo actually, what's been the curve like with Lauren Hempers there been like a huge improvement has she suddenly gone up a gear or are these the kind of performances she's been putting in for quite a while?
1: I think she she's for the last couple of years she's been playing at a very good level. I mean she's won the the PFA young player of the year award like three or four times in a row. It's ridiculous. Um I I don't know when you kind of graduate after you've won it a few times. I feel like you shouldn't be eligible for that award <laughs> anymore no matter your age because it seems yeah. a bit silly now that uh, no one else gets a chance really for that one. Um but I do think this season she has really, really stepped up a, a level. She's always been a very exciting talent. She missed a bit of last season through injury. Um, but since she's come back from that injury this season, from kind of start to finish, she's just been unplayable at times. And that's obviously very good news for England. Um, and I think you're right, Kevin. I think the fact that Chloe Kelly's coming back and, and finding form quite quickly after having that ACL injury is is really impressive because I do think what teams have done against Man City this season is very much focused on shutting down the Lauren Hemp threat and when they do that City didn't really have other options so it's really important that England don't fall into that trap as well. I think Serena Bigman is is a better coach than Gareth Taylor and, and, ha- and has more options at her disposal and, and is more creative with the way that she plays with England but I think having Chloe Kelly down that right right hand side and Beth Mead as well who's had a very good season I think that's going to be so good for England because at times it's going to be so hard for teams to control and defend against them because, they, because they've because they just got so many options
2: uh, Flo I was going to ask you about Serena anyway um, she was with the Netherlands when <laughs> they won the Euro 2017 and she would run us up. Uh, she was with them when they were run us up at the World Cup 2019. Now she's with England. A lot being said about her. From what you can see, what has she brought to the England team?
1: I think she's a brilliant coach, first and foremost. Um, I think it's, it's felt like a long time since England had a coach who's very good at coaching, who knows football. You know, she uh, was one of the, the first... Uh, women in the world I think to get a, a pro licence so she's a very very experienced coach um, she's coached with men's teams she's obviously been the head coach, head coach of women's teams uh, and yeah she's she's very good at what she does and I think one of the things that she's probably the best at in women's football is reading the game and being able to change the situations I mean I think Thomas Tuchel is one of the best coaches in the world at doing that at being able to read a situation and and then bring the changes required required to 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 get a grip at the game or win the game or whatever it, it may be and i think serena bigman she's maybe not quite as good as him at that but she's very good at that and england i think that's where they struggled in the past is making the right substitutions thing we saw in the belgium game just a few days ago when england was struggling to to really break through Belgium. We were, it was very organised, set up very well. Uh, she made some changes at halftime and, and England blew them away in the second half. And I think that's what she's really good at. I think that will be really important as well, especially at home tournament, where say you go in nil-nil in a, in a quarterfinal game and you've got the crowd getting a little bit nervous, getting a little bit, you know, uh getting a little bit touchy and i think it's very important for you to be able to kind of get a grip on the game make those substitutions to then show that ruthlessness and that confidence and and i think bring that mentality and then outside of that i think she's been a very impressive person um she's got that sort of i think typical dutch style where she's very matter of fact um you know she's very she's very polite she's very funny but she's also very matter of fact she doesn't mince her words I mean in the press conference after she announced the Euro squads you know, lots of questions about Steph Horton and she said very, um, you know, very clearly, yeah, Steph wasn't happy. She was, she was very angry about it. Now, not many coaches would say that they would probably be very political, very polite and say, oh, you know, it was a hard conversation, but you know, she took it well. Uh, But um, Serena just, she she says what she means. She's very honest. She's very open. And I think that's brilliant. And then she matches that with, you know, great coaching ability as well.
3: Yeah, that was a big talking point, wasn't it? That Steph Horton wasn't in the, in the Team, but she hadn't really played a game since January, and she's had an Achilles injury, so it can't be that much of a surprise. However, Fran Kirby hasn't played much football either, but she has been included, uh, which raised one or two eyebrows. It'd be interesting where she fits into the team with all that attacking talent that England already have at their disposal. One of the problems they had, I think, particularly when they were ripped apart by the USA uh, in Lyon, was defensively, and the makeup of the defence is really key, isn't it? What happens with Leah Williamson? Is she going to play in midfield? Or is she going to play at centre-half? Who then partners Millie Bright? And if that is the case, does Alex Greenwood play at centre-half like she's been doing for Manchester City? Because she's been a key player for Gareth Taylor's team, especially in the second half of the season. And her set-piece delivery is sensational, Flo.
1: Yeah, I think the best combination for England and and Serena Bigman has played this combination a fair bit would be Alex Greenwood on the left-hand side centre-back position, then Millie Bright on the right. It is a luxury in football to have a naturally left-sided centre-back. There's not a lot of them in the game. We obviously know that's why Tyrone Mins is sometimes favoured for England as well. It it is a luxury. So I feel like that's why Serena Bigman will go with that partnership and they've played well together. Uh, And then that leaves Demi Stokes to play at left-back. She, I think, she is probably one of the weaker links for England. Um, she, she's a very pragmatic player, but she's very risk averse, and I think that limits them a little bit going forward. She's obviously very experienced that position, but she's also not as quick because she's you know a little bit older now. So we may see someone like Rachel Daly, who yeah. plays in an attacking position for her club, but has played at right back for England. She may play at left back uh, Serena has
3: done that before, hasn't she? She's played. Yeah, at she's back done
1: before. that a couple times now, and because she is a, a, a forward player. She's very aggressive going forward. So I think against some of the sort of weaker opposition, if you want to call that maybe against Austria and Northern Ireland, we will see maybe Rachel Daly play at left back because I think England can take a few more risks in that. And then I think we'll see Williamson and Walsh perhaps play uh, in midfield uh, in front of the back four.
3: Um, there's been quite a few movements as far as the England players are concerned just before the start of the tournament. There's quite a big gap between the FA Cup final and the start of the European Championship, which I think is quite good. A lot of them went to uh, the West Coast of America. Actually, a lot of them went together to the West Coast of America. And they had a real break before they joined up with the Lionesses. But in between time, Lucy Bronze has joined Barcelona Um I'm. Munich have snapped up Georgia Stanway as well. Um, is there anybody else that could be distracted by things that are going on domestically?
1: I th- I think it should be fairly quiet now. The only sort of question mark is the potential rumours around Kira Walsh may be moved, moving from City as well. Um, I think she's been linked to uh, a move to Real Madrid potentially where Caroline Weir is also uh, potentially heading. So I think she's probably the only one in the England camp at the moment who has a real question mark over her future. I think everyone else seems fairly settled um, and I People weren't sure whether Lucy Bronze was going to announce her next move before the tournament or after the tournament. So that's sort of out the way. Um, I think that deal had been done I mean, a, a, a week or so ago, but there, no one was actually sure where she was going. She said, you know, I've, I've signed my new deal in a new club. But there were rumours that she might be going to the States or she might be going to Real Madrid. And she surprised everyone, really, by heading to Barcelona. But I think... I think it should be okay in terms of rumours and, and um, you know storylines because really Lucy Bronze was the real free agent that everyone was sort of whispering about where she's going, where she's going. And now that's done, I think you know, there'll be fewer distractions really.
4: Flo, I was going to ask about about those moves, actually, but in a, in a different sense. Georgia Stanway making the move to Bayern. We know they're one of the biggest clubs in, in Germany, although not as dominant, of course, in women's football as, as they are <laughs> in men's football. But Lucy Bronze has played for Lyon for a long time, gained experience there, is going to go to Barcelona. We know what they've done on the continental stage. We've got players in the States as well. How was that change the picture of all of those experiences really help those players and experience of playing different leagues.
1: I think so, yeah. I mean, this start of this season, I don't think there were any... Rachel Daly was the only player who didn't play in England. Um, previously, you had uh, Nikita Paris in Lyon. Alex Greenwood spent some time in Lyon. Obviously, Lucy Bronze was in Lyon. Tony Duggan spent some time in the, in the Spanish leagues. Is he Christian was in Lyon. Duggan and Christian aren't involved in England at the moment. Uh, and maybe, you know, who knows if they will get... Managed to find their way back into the squad. But... I do think it certainly helped them. Um, I think, especially with someone like Rachel Daly, because... I mean, who knows where she would be playing positionally if she didn't play uh, for the Houston Dash in the States. And she's their record goal scorer. Um, And, you know, she's such an important part of their team. They absolutely love her over there. I think it's given her massive confidence playing over there. And I'm sure she's had lots. I mean, she's done loan spells over here, but I'm sure she's had lots of offers to come back over here permanently. But she absolutely loves playing in the US League. So I think it is really important. I think Georgia Stanway, I think, will really thrive playing in in a different league I think it is hard obviously for someone like her when you've spent your whole career playing in England and also such a long part of that I think she made her debut for City when she was like 15 or 16 so that's really tough but her boyfriend plays uh, rugby league in France so she's a little bit closer to him now as well so I think I think she's going to really thrive and I'm really excited for you know some of these players taking what could be a bit of a risk um, and you know really I think developing their game. What's
3: happened to Nikita Paris?
1: It's a great question. Um, I mean, I thought she was one of the players who was potentially really at risk of dropping out of the England squad. It's not been a good season for her. Uh, I think she's potentially a bit lucky that when she has played under Serena Bigman, she's actually played quite well in the sort of short burst that we've seen from her. She does offer something a little bit different on the right-hand side, and I think she she has impressed under Serena Bigman. but when it comes to Arsenal, I don't think she's really found her place in that team. Uh, I think she, you know, she struggled to find form, she struggled to get consistent game time, she did score a few goals in their Champions League qualifying games, uh, but yeah, it's not been a great season for her. I think There are quite a few England players, I think, who are in that sort of awkward age where if you were someone who built your game on pace and I think Lucy Bronze is someone like this as well if you're someone who built your game on pace and a bit of physicality and and aggressiveness when you reach that kind of like late 20s early 30s point in your career it's really hard to find what you do because you don't have that edge anymore and I think I think Lucy Bronze is in that place I think Debbie Stokes is in that place a little bit I think Nikita Paris is in that place a little bit I think you're sort of in limbo because you're trying to work out how you can still beat players and how you can still take on players. And I think this this Euros is going to be really interesting for some of those sorts of players because in the World Cup, we saw them thrive at like their actual sort of age peak as a footballer. Yeah. And now a few years on, it's like, right, what do I do? How do I play? How do I adapt? And I think in some of these games we've seen from Lucy Bronze in England shirt recently, she's been taking a lot of risks. And I think it's kind of a bit of a sort of, a reality check of like, where am I now in relation to some of the other best players around the
3: world. At least we won't be having the debate about where Lucy Bronze plays this uh, major tournament. Uh, is, she gonna, is Phil Neville going to play her in midfield, which was uh, very much the dominant conversation ahead of 2019. And it won't be as hot as it was in Lyon in the latter stages of the uh, World Cup three years ago. Um, but the, all the commentaries are live on TalkSport. Uh, England and Northern Ireland games, every single one of them, plus the semi-finals and the finals, are all on TalkSport. Flo is part of our team and we're very excited about it, aren't we? we flow, so um we look uh, we look forward to uh, bringing you that live on talk sport cheers flo
1: cheers guys cheers, flo. it's
0: that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax
1: and think about
0: work You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One
2: size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt.
2: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
0: The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on talk sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus. Be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply.
3: Okay, Eddie and Nketi has been given the iconic Thierry Henry, number 14 shirt, Darren. Uh, 23 goals in 92 appearances. His chances have been few and far between. To be fair, he's 23. Maybe he should be further along now. But Thierry Henry's number? Good idea, bad idea. What do you reckon? I know I, I'm obsessed with numbers. I know I, Raheem, don't wear the nine. I'm not entirely No, listen, sure. I, I think
2: you're right to be obsessed. Um, I, I took a lot, as you know. But I think with this one, it's very simple. I think he is absolutely crazy. <laughs>
3: Yes, I agree with you. I mean, why would you do it? You put, you're piling pressure on yourself, right, Kev?
4: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I think, <clears throat> I mean, in, in one way, it shows bravado and it shows confidence. And if it works out, then great. But you're never going to hit that level. Eddie <laughs> Nketiah, bless him, is never going to beat Thierry Henry. So I, I do think it's unnecessary pressure to be honest, and I wonder where that's really come from. I mean, Edu's got a picture of him
3: sort of handing it over and it's all like big, smiley and wonderful. And you're like, yeah, but guys, the the, the poor kid has only just, you only just about signed him on a new contract. You didn't give him any game time until the end of last season when you had nobody else. So, like, you know, are we sure this is the right sort of thing to do after... Maybe next year when he scored 20 goals... in the Premier League then you you might want to
4: do it but now? But you just dial down the background noise at this point of your career he needs to focus (laughs) on being really really good for Arsenal (sighs) and justifying the new contracts I mean it wasn't that long ago he was nearly going to Palace and that fell through and so you know credit to him for digging in and, and kind of convincing Mikel Arteta but you know, if they'd have got in Dushan Vlajovic, which which was never going to happen, I don't think, but if they had, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I do think it's a strange
2: one. I do. Um, I looked at the news around that. And it rem- I looked at it in the same way that I looked at that video footage of the guy on the plane who was trying to antagonise Mike Tyson. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, you're thinking, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> well, I kind of looked at it in the same way. I think there's nothing for me to add. I think we make perfect sense. I'm going to be quiet now.
3: Um, West Ham signed centre-back uh, Naif Aguerd from Rennes. He's already said his goodbyes. He's going to cost around 30 million quid. Is that a position, Darren, that West Ham need to strengthen?
2: Absolutely yes. Um they had a real center half problem towards the latter stages of their season uh, partly because Craig Dawson was suspended mostly because their other center halves were injured. Uh, David Moyes likes to build from the back. He's also in for David Rom at Hoffenheim, a uh, really good young uh, left fullback who um, has one of the highest assist makers in the Bundesliga last season. Um, sorry for stepping on your toes with this, uh, Kevin, because I know No, no. Know happened, this though, is a mate. perfect pricey of David Ram. <laughs> Um But I, I think he adds considerably more than both Arthur Matsuaku who is decent but not quite good enough and uh, Aaron Cresswell who was sent off twice in the Europa League campaign um, he's an honest player we know what he brings but I think David Rahm is a level up and it's the reason why Newcastle Manchester United and several Dortmund as I understand it are in for him as well David Rahm and uh, Eggerd, and just a little bit about him he helped Morocco get to the world yeah. uh, cup finals in Qatar beat Congo uh, on the way there he's been a really consistent performer for his club and you would imagine him alongside Zuma at the Heart of West Ham's defence will be a really good partnership to move forward as far as West Ham are concerned because David Moyes is very, very set on making sure that he's got an established back four. Um, and as I say, there are injury concerns around the other players. Craig Dawson, nothing wrong with him, good on his pro, but I think Eggerd is a level up.
3: Yeah, uh, Steve Cooper's about to sign a new contract to Nottingham Forest. That's an important development. So is the fact that they're probably going to get uh, Dean Henderson in the door as the goalkeeper and Brennan Johnson looks like he's going to sign a new
4: contract and that will be massive for them yeah he's been hugely exciting for them not just in the championship I was really impressed with him for Wales mm. in the recent internationals I thought he looked excellent. great finisher. Um, the way he took a couple of his goals superb Uh, I think what's really interesting about Forrest actually is some of the uh, straying back to the Bundesliga as as I'll always try and get the conversation Ah, uh, to go to Teutonic matters but um, (laughs) they've been linked with a couple of Bundesliga players who were excellent actually potentially for a newly promoted team so Moussini Akate who's a left-sided centre-back who's been really good for Mainz quiet leader good on the ball physical difficult to get past doesn't make many mistakes only got a year left on his deal at Mainz and then Taiwo Awoniyi, who is a Nigerian centre-forward who's done ever so well for Union Berlin and he's a guy that can be a really good focal point mm. in attack for them mm. can bring other players in mm. I, I think he's an excellent player we don't we don't
3: talk about Union Berlin
4: <laughs> no,
3: only Hertha
4: as a Hertha fan yeah yeah that the, quiet doing. You... they used to be friends Hertha and no, Union not anymore
3: though we used to be in fact all the Berlin clubs used to be uh, quite friendly until until Union got anywhere near promotion <laughs> um, but uh, you want some good news Kev and I wonder actually if yes. you want to come with me for this um, but uh, Herter are going to play both Nottingham Forest and Derby in July in in
4: England this is exciting. Did you know it, that? And they'll do it as a Bundesliga club. And they did everything they could to make sure they didn't do it as a Bundesliga <laughs> club. But they just about got there.
3: The worst thing they did was they appointed Felix Magat as their manager for the last six weeks of the season. And everyone just went, oh, no. Oh, no. Why have you done that? And actually, it worked. Uh, so well done to him. Uh, so yeah, I'll be going to those games. I'm very excited about it. Um, OK, big splash this weekend um, was that Jack Grealish... Is in Las Vegas, uh, towers of five thousand pounds a night, suites, an eighty grand splurge, and one hundred and sixteen bottles of champagne. Clubbing brunettes, a pool party. Some might ask, do we really care that Jack is on the lash in Vegas? Others will say this is the reason he didn't set the world alight with Manchester City in England last season. Where are we on this, Darren? I mean, as like, I declare, a little bit of an interest here, as someone who is about to go. On the lash in Vegas, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to criticize him too much,
2: <laughs> but <laughs> uh, is, this, is this our pod's version of party game? <laughs> um, I listen, the last thing young footballers need is older guys like us basically telling them how they should spend their free time,
3: especially when you copy them.
2: Yeah, well, quite especially <laughs> when you copy them, yes, indeed. Um, he didn't do anything he wrong.
3: He's just having a—he's having a bit of downtime.
2: Absolutely, he's having downtime. I just think one thing, two things. A footballers should be aware that managers are always watching them. I've been in. Uh, Press conferences where I've heard managers speak about other players and their holiday exploits. But, but, but Darren,
3: say. he obviously doesn't care about that because he got absolutely, yeah, absolutely. bladdered on a bus in front of Pep Guardiola.
2: Absolutely, um, but you know, just like us in our jobs, we'd be quite naive to think the boss isn't watching. You know, um, Not really and good, we man. may say it's our downtime, and we may say, "Well, you know," and, and we'd, you'd be quite right. It's your da- that's why I'm quite loath to kind of wave my finger at Jack because he's a young man, he's living the dream, he's having fun. Who am I to tell him what he shouldn't shouldn't do? I'm just saying, in the context of this, managers are always watching, mm. always.
4: Yeah, Kevin, That's a disturbing, t- uh, dist- yeah. disturbing idea, isn't it? Well, I'll tell uh, you
2: very quickly, Kevin. If you look at Gareth Southgate, there are one or two players who are not in his squad mm. because he is concerned about the way that they let their hair down. Yes. It's not a secret. Um, and as I say, managers, they might not be public about it. They might you know, address whatever they need to in private, but they are always watching. And some managers, you know, sometimes as a player, and this doesn't just go for Premier League players, it goes for across Europe. Some players look at, when, when the clubs sign some players, they look at what they are like. Yeah, of course. In the dressing room, on the pitch, away from the dressing room, in their downtime. They look at all of that bigger picture. And that's all I'm saying. The rest is up to him.
4: So the story goes, when Thomas Tukel first arrived in Paris one of the first things he did was he rung up the managers of all of the local nightclubs and restaurants <laughs> to find out who was going in there and trying to strike up a relationship with them and find out who was clubbing and when, which is it's a very a Thomas lot. Tuchel thing to do. There's a quite a lot of nightclubs
3: and restaurants in Paris. I mean, that, that is some job, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> he's a very through, thorough guy. <laughs> you
4: through a very big yellow pages there. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that's the kind of lengths Tuckle will go to, to uh, make sure he's in control yeah. of every situation. I have no problem with the Grealish thing. Good luck to him. If it's legal, it's fine. So I, I don't think there's a big problem. Mr. Tuchel,
2: I have the manager of the Pink Flamingo on the phone for you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the worst thing is, he's is, is a good job my boss doesn't do that sort of phoning around. Um, <laughs> uh, or, 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 or Alex Crook's boss, uh, because, uh, you know... <laughs> We certainly wouldn't have
4: time. We'd run out of time to make all those calls. I was going to
3: say you need a few yellow pages for that. (laughs) Uh, Right, okay, gents, thank you very much uh, for uh, getting involved in the pod today. Um, We are. I'm not back Thursday because I'll be uh, trying to, uh, um, I'll probably get on the coattails of Jack Ridge actually and join that £80,000 splurge on 116 bottles of champagne, if I'm completely honest. Uh, I I heard that uh, there's a few other players that are out there as well, so I'll be trying to hunt them down and get into their parties because there's no way I'm paying for it. Um... (laughs) I will see you'll be with um, I think you're both with um, Alex Crook or certainly you are Darren No, you're not because you're partying as well this weekend because you're youthful and cool you're going to Glastonbury
4: I am going to Glastonbury yes so I shall have a party of my own in a field with a lot of mud involved so hopefully that will be a lot of fun the weather looks okay at the moment so just just to reiterate it is Glastonbury.
3: He isn't just going to any field and having a party with loads of mud. Uh, no, no, that—that's what I'm doing the week after that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember, Kevin, the bosses are always watching. Uh, right, always. that's it. Um, thank you very much for downloading the Game Day podcast from Talk Sport. Remember, the European Championships uh, starts on the sixth of July. Every single England game is live.